Well, welcome. Welcome and good morning. Uh, you know, a few days ago, there were some big headlines in Madison in the sports world, in particular because uh, Barry Alvarez named Greg Gard the official head coach of Badger men's basketball. And uh, those of you who follow basketball, you know that Gard was the longtime assistant to Coach Bo Ryan. He'd been serving much of uh, this season as well as kind of the interim head coach. Now, it, it had been long believed that Bo Ryan really wanted Gard to be his successor uh, and a replacement for him, but that, that perhaps that succession was delayed in part because uh, Gard's desire was to be with his father as he was fighting a battle with brain cancer. And uh, last October, um, Gard's father lost that fight and passed away. And uh, during his official acceptance uh, of this coaching position last week, the Journey Sentinel reca- recounted this emotional comment that he made with these words, starting with a quote by Coach Gard. Obviously, where this all begins is always at home, Gard said, his eyes welling with tears and his voice cracking. It all started in a little town about 60 miles from here. For my mom, Connie, for you to be here means so much. And dad's here as well. He's just watching from above. But thank you for everything that you've done. Now, this emotional acceptance shows us a few things about Coach Guard, that he um, loves his family well, that he had a very uh, dear place in his heart for his father. Um, Clearly, it's significant to him that the thought that though his dad wasn't there physically, he was with them in presence, that he was watching on this one of the biggest days of his life that he'd been waiting for really for 22 years as an assistant coach. And, And this leads me to a question. The question is this, why is it that some people find such comfort in believing that their loved ones who have passed are still watching them or somehow cheering them on? Well, for one, I think it's because presence matters. Because as relational people, even though we can't see uh, them anymore, the thought that they are watching and encouraging us, it gives us a sense of strength. It leads us to behave differently. It causes us to live more honorably, to dig deep and find courage We need to overcome great challenges. Now, in today's account, we're going to review one of the more well-known stories in the Old Testament. If you grew up in church, undoubtedly uh, you've heard this in sermons and Sunday school lessons. And yet, often the moral of the story in those environments becomes this. It becomes, how can we live more like Joseph? How can we work like Joseph? How can we face temptation like Joseph? While Joseph, he was truly a man of great character, there is no debate there whatsoever. To read the text from that perspective is to to subtly and yet poignantly miss a more important emphasis that just saturates this text, and it's this. The Lord was with Joseph. Eight times in this account, it's emphasized that the Lord was 
the true main character of this story. The Lord was with Joseph is seen in verse 2, 3, 21, and 23. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed is seen in verse 3. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. It's stated twice in verse 5. The Lord made Joseph succeed is found in verse 23. And so I return to the statement related to Coach Guard that I just made, because I think it also applies to this text. Presence matters. Even though we can't see him, the thought that God is there watching us and encouraging us, it gives us strength. It leads us to behave differently. It causes us to live more honorably. To dig deep and find courage, we need to overcome great challenges. And so today, we're going to explore, really, how it is that God was with Joseph in the context of hardship, in the context of his success, and finally, in the midst of temptation. So join with me as a just prayer and give this word to the Lord now. Let's pray. Lord, we need you, and we need your presence. Be with us now. Speak to us in ways that human words cannot speak. Translate your word deep into our hearts by your spirit that we might leave this place molded and shaped more like you, reflectors of your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this opening point, it's a great segue from Zach's wonderful sermon last week that was out of Genesis 37, I want to encourage you, if you didn't hear it, to go back and do so. Let's take a moment as we think about how God is with Joseph in hardship to briefly review, though, kind of where we're coming from so we're all on the same page. In chapter 37, we learned that Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, and this resulted in Jacob giving him what? You know, a multicolored coat, Right? And, and, and this reminded both he and his brothers that he was dad's favorite. And later, Joseph, he recounted these dreams to both his father and his brother. And in these dreams, he, he saw them all bowing down to them. And of course, this only increased his brother's feelings of jealousy and anger. And this growing animosity eventually led to them stripping him of his robe and casting him into a pit ignoring his cries for mercy as they sat and enjoyed the food that he brought for them. Now, with the encouragement of the brother Judah, instead of uh, you know, killing him, having his blood on their hands, they choose to profit from his life, and so they sell him to Midianite slave traders. And this leads us to where we pick up today. Look at verse 1. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt in Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, we can really only imagine how difficult this whole experience must have been for Joseph. This beloved son, victimized violently by his own flesh and blood, the brothers he loved, stripping him of the the robe that was given to him, ignoring those 
Screams of mercy? Can you imagine? And then what do they do? The next morning, they pull him out of the pit. They sell him to a slave merchant like he's nothing more than cattle. I mean, what must have been going through this 18-year-old man's mind? Bound in chains, he hears the chatter of foreign men speaking a language he doesn't even understand. These Midianites then sell him to another band of slave traders, apparently, the Ishmaelites, who then lead him on this unfamiliar train, barren lands, constantly reminding him that he's getting further and further away from the land and the people he loves. And then he enters Egypt. And and there he sees, again, strangely dressed, strangely speaking Egyptians, evidence all around of their foreign gods sculpted into the side of buildings and statues. There's Anubis, the jackal-headed man who is the god and the protector of the dead. There's Bastet, a woman with the head of a cat, the lioness deity and goddess of pleasure. There's Horus, a man with the head of a hawk, believed to be the god of the sky, the divine protector of kings. And of course, there's Pharaoh, who was also viewed as a god to be worshipped. And so there he is. He's in a strange, strange land. And what happens when he gets there? He's likely bound and stripped almost completely naked. In the market, he's poked and prodded by buyers seeing if he is a man worthy of the task they desire to be done. And then by God's grace, he catches the eye of this Potiphar, this captain of the guard, who then brings him home into the much-favored role of house slave. Now, in the midst of this terribly dehumanizing experience that few of us can really wrap our minds around, I believe, based on what we know about Joseph, based on what we learn from how he interacts with all the circumstances he faces, that even in these dark moments, he must have been recounting and rehearsing in his mind the promises of God that he had been taught ever since he was a little child. Promises that through the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God would bring blessing to the nations. Promises that God made to his father, Jacob, that from his children would come kings and an inheritance of land. And even those dreams I I mentioned from chapter 37, they must have been a comfort, believing that one day he would be a great leader. So these thoughts must have provided some kind of meaning and hope, must have given him some sort of confidence that though he is so, so far away from all that is familiar in his life, God is there. Now, as we think about Joseph's experience, how he was sustained by the presence of God, we should also be encouraged. Think for a moment about a hardship that you are presently facing. Just think about that. We've had a a tough few weeks in our home. There's been discouragement, conflict. There's been exhaustion. There's been failure. 
And even though, you know, I've walked with the Lord for, for decades, and yet I still need that reminder. I still need it that God is with me in those dark moments, that God's presence is there to comfort me, that he is sustaining and reminding me that he is there with me, that there is great purpose behind the fear and despair. Romans 5, 3 through 5 serves as an encouragement to us in this. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Now on the screen, you're going to see a painting. And this painting was uh, painted by Johannes Vermeer. It's known as the girl with a pearl earring. Now this was painted in the mid-17th century, long, long ago. But as I was looking around the internet this week, what I found was a contemporary artist's attempt to recreate this classic work. And you'll see it now with these six images as they detail this experience. And, And even though this is probably nothing like what Vermeer actually did to create the original work, it does illustrate something for us. And it's this, that art, all art, and especially great art, that it comes in stages many of which to the average observer may not only be unattractive, but perhaps even unrecognizable. Now imagine if we were alive back in the day that Vermeer was actually painting the original work, and if we stepped in in those early stages and and foolishly came to the conclusion that this was not a good work. That image doesn't look anything like that girl. My sixth grader could do better than that. It would be foolish to do something like that, wouldn't it? Absolute foolishness. Why? Because the painting wasn't finished. It was in process. Similarly, when Joseph was bound to the post, half naked in the slave market, he could have shaken a fist at God. He could live his life bitter and bound and broken. But it would have been ridiculous to do such a thing. Why? Because the painting wasn't finished. It was in process. The artist must be given the time needed to finish his masterpiece. In what ways is God inviting you? Is he inviting you to view your present hardships in a different light? To see that in those experiences, God, like the great artist that he is, he is with you. He is guiding you through the necessary stages towards something beautiful. 
So we've seen that God was with Joseph in hardship. And now let's explore how he is with him in success. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So in a matter of years, Joseph went from, in the words of Downton Abbey, from a footman to a butler. Okay? So Joseph, he must have applied himself in those early days, learning the language, right? Serving Potiphar faithfully. But what must have won the trust of Potiphar more than anything else is what we read in verse 3. The Lord caused all that he, speaking of Joseph, did to succeed. So by God's grace, it seemed like Joseph, he had the the Midas touch. Whatever he was involved with, it prospered. And this led uh, Potiphar to place him in the position of overseeing the entire household. Look at verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Potiphar had so much trust in Joseph, that he literally forgot things. Okay, he no longer concerned himself with most of the important duties of his household. So the blessing Potiphar now enjoyed at the hands of Joseph was pointing to really this covenant promise from God to Abraham that Joseph was now blessed by God to be a blessing to Potiphar. Now, this is a really great experience that I think we can embody and imply in our own experience as well. So for those of you uh, who, uh, and, and this would apply to all of us in certain ways, but for the, all, of the, all of you who are under the authority of another, okay, do those who supervise you so enjoy the blessings of God through your work that they too are blessed? That by seeing the the faithfulness of your service, they empower you with great responsibility. They even forget certain tasks because they know you'll perform those tasks as well or even better than they do them themselves. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Two things are true in those words. Number one, that God wants us to do good works, to shine our light before others in how we Live, serve, work, and bless. And the second thing that God wants is for us to credit him for the work. 
to glorify him as the mover behind our goodness, as the one who deserves all the glory for everything that we do. Tim Challies writes this quote in his book, uh, Do More Better, that I think summarizes this beautifully. Your good works are like a light, and when that light shines, it illuminates God. When people see that light, they aren't meant to look at you and say, he's incredible, or she's amazing. They're meant to look at God and say, he is awesome. Amen. Now, my wife, she's been really blessed um, over the last few years to work for a Christian orthopedic surgeon. And as Carrie has shared stories about this surgeon, and then I've actually gotten to validate those stories as I've spoken with him myself, there's this common refrain that he says. And it's that this team that he's working with, this staff, is the best team he's ever had the privilege to work with. And the reality is this. His team is so fantastic that it's greatly simplified his role in the clinic. There are two things that this orthopedist does. Number one... He meets with clients to consult and to help them and to assess them. And and when when they allow to pray, he'll pray for them. And then the second thing he does is he performs surgeries. He, He literally has been able to forget a great majority of the other details associated with running a good clinic. And his clinic has consistently had some of the highest ratings in the entire hospital system in which he's associated. So his trust for his team has not only blessed him, but it's brought blessing to the patients in the entire medical community in which he serves. And it's the same kind of effect, friends, that we should have as Christians in every area of our life and ministry. So whether you're serving as a parent in a home or a spouse or a student in school or an employee at work or a volunteer in ministry, your goal should be the same, to work in such a way that others may see your good works and bring glory to God. In what ways is God inviting you to view your work differently in light of this truth? So we've seen that God was with Joseph in hardship, that he was with Joseph in success. And now we're going to see that he was with Joseph even in the grips of temptation. Look with me at verse 6, the latter part of verse 6, I should say. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, of his his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Now, here we see that Joseph, in adolescent terms, was a hottie. Okay? Joseph was a hottie. 
And without a doubt, this was in the genes because the same Hebrew language describing this about him was used related to his mother, Rachel. Now, from what we know of ancient Egypt, illicit sexual relationships in the context of this household hierarchy would not have been uncommon or unexpected. So it wouldn't have been unusual for a master or his wife, slaves, staff to be sexually involved in various ways. And in light of this, it must have been difficult for Joseph. Here he is, he's in his young 20s, in a foreign land, okay, the testosterone or or T-factor, as we call it in my house, it's flowing through his veins, The temptation of his flesh in combination with the pressures of the culture must have been almost unbearable, I would imagine, at times. In addition to this, it's likely that Potiphar's wife, that she was not only a woman of influence, but that she was likely very beautiful. So what strengthened him in the midst of such temptation? It appears to be a mindfulness of God and the strength of God to sustain. We see this in verse 9. Because where does he appeal? He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But this, this temptation, it wasn't limited to seductive looks and smooth words. Look at verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. So apparently the day had finally come. Everyone was out of the house. It was just her and Joseph. And so she grabbed his garment, grabbed him, attempting to seduce him. And it it would have been no small struggle because if you can imagine a long t-shirt, that probably was similar to what it was he was wearing. And she literally got that off of his body somehow. And what did Joseph do? He ran. He ran. This is a great reminder for all of us that true courage can look like running. And so he ran. He got out of the the source of temptation. And Potiphar's wife was not happy, right? She was humiliated. And so she called the guards and the servants back into the household and brought accusation against Joseph telling them that she'd been attacked, blaming Potiphar. He's the one who brought this filthy Hebrew rapist into our home. So once Potiphar arrived home, she told him the same fabricated stories. And in verse 19, we read, As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. 
But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, it would have been very common in that day and acceptable and expected that Potiphar would immediately sentence Joseph to death. But something else gave him pause, clearly. Perhaps it was the distrust of his wife, which is likely. Perhaps it was his love for Joseph. We don't really know. But whatever the case, Joseph experienced God's grace and kindness through Potiphar's punishment, which really sent him to a country club version of prison, to the king's jail, where, of course, as we've already seen before, he quickly rose to a position of authority. So the big idea of this section is this. God was with Joseph helping him to resist temptation. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this idea uh, in the last few weeks, preparing for this sermon, and and I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say this is one of the most important truths for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ to recognize and to rest in as we fight temptation, namely that God is with us. Now, I want to take us on a very, very brief journey, thinking about the implications of this in light of the Christian gospel, which brings even deeper meaning and depth to this concept. Now, for the sake of those of you who are not Christians or are not familiar with the church, let me give you a real quick summary of what it means to be a Christian. What you need to understand is that to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, is to be given a new identity, a new way of relating to God. To be a Christian is to turn from your sinful nature, which has naturally been away from God, and to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And this can be done because Christ died upon the cross, taking upon himself the punishment and the sin that we deserve punishment for. And when he rose from the dead, he broke the power of sin and death, making forever reconciliation with God available to all who trust in him for that forgiveness. Now, guys are a bit weirded out by the metaphor I'm about to share with you, okay? But this is a biblical picture for you. And it's this, that when we become followers of Jesus Christ by his grace and Through his mercy, he becomes our groom, and we become his bride. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that in the human sphere of relationships, particularly in the biblical understanding of them, there is no more intimate union than between a husband and a wife. Now, Ephesians 5 describes our relationship to Christ in detail, helping us to see that he's not only our husband in name, 
but he's our husband in function. He is practicing good husband duties as he actively works to transform our hearts to be more like him. Look at Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What this means is that Jesus is not only present with us as he was with Joseph, but he is in us. He is one with us. And he is actively setting us apart to be holy. He is literally working on our behalf to purify us from sin. So that has huge implications in our lives as we wrestle with temptation in life, whether it be sexual temptation or bitterness or anger or gossip or greed. And Elise Fitzpatrick, she beautifully summarizes this principle with these words. Jesus gave this beautiful bride to himself by cleansing her through washing with the word of the gospel, life-transforming words about his work on our behalf that sanctify, which means set apart, that sets us apart and purifies us. His whole goal was to make us fit for him, a glorious queen fit for a king. Oh, how different this groom is. So many men look for a woman who is already beautiful, one who will enhance their resume and make the men think that they have value. Jesus did just the opposite. He went and found the most vile creature he could, and he set about beautifying her by taking her vileness upon himself and fully identifying with her, thereby remaking her into his image. What we need to see here is that God was with Joseph and that it blessed the work of his hands and gave him the strength to resist temptation. But this same presence of God, it's not only with us, but it's in us. That the purposes of God in Christ through the Spirit is to scandalously forgive us of sin, to infuse us with his presence, to radically transform us by actively working on our behalf to make us into something new. In the book, Washed and Waiting, by Wesley Hill, He shares his story as a man with same-sex attraction who, like Joseph, is trying to uphold this biblical ethic of sexual purity as he fights the temptation to act out sexually in a way that's contrary to what's invited of our lives as Christians in the scriptures. And so he tells this story in his book about a time where his struggle with his sexual sin and identity 
made him feel like his world was crashing in around him. And these are the words that he, this is the story he recounts. I had been living in Minneapolis for only a few months, and I felt burdened, physically so at times, by loneliness, confusion, and fear. During a brief visit to Wheaton, Illinois, I arranged to meet my good friend Chris, and on a cold winter afternoon, I told him how I was feeling and asked for his help. Out of the things Chris said to me in response to that day, one sticks out. With compassion in his voice, he said, Imagine yourself standing in the presence of God, looking down from heaven on the earthly life you're about to be born into, and God says to you, Wes, I'm going to send you into the world for 60 or 70 or 80 years. It will be hard. In fact, it will be more painful and confusing and distressing than you can now imagine. You'll have a thorn in your flesh, a homosexual orientation that is the result of your entering into a world that sin and death have broken. And you may wrestle with it all your life, but I will be with you. I will be watching every step you take, guiding you by my spirit, supplying you with grace sufficient for each day. And at the end of your journey, you will see my face again. And the joy we share then will be born out of the agonies you faithfully endured by the power I gave you. And no one will take that joy away from you. Wesley, Chris said, looking into the, me, in, me in the eye, would you say yes to the journey if you had had that conversation with God? I nodded. But you have had it. In a sense, God is the author of your story. He is watching, supplying you with his spirit moment by moment, and he will raise your body from the dead to live with him and all the great company of the redeemed forever. Can you keep walking the lonely road? If you remember, he is looking on and delights to help you persevere. Wesley points out in his book that this conversation forever changed his life. That a radical understanding of God's presence with him is what gave him strength and is giving him strength even at times when it feels like a string of random disappointments is all that life has given him. Whatever temptation it is that you're facing today, how is it that God is inviting you to gain strength in the knowledge of his presence? To find courage to face another day knowing that he is near, that he accepts you in your sin and shame, and that he is beautifying you, remaking you into his own image for the glory of his great name. Well, as we've seen this morning, God was with Joseph and is with us in our hardships. God was with Joseph and is with us in our success. And that God was with Joseph and is with us as we faced temptation. I close with these words from a Charles Wesley hymn, which reminds us once again of the power of God's presence. 
celebrate Emmanuel's name, the Prince of Life and Peace. God with us, our lips proclaim, our faithful hearts confess. God is in our flesh revealed, heaven and earth in Jesus join, mortal with immortal filled and human with divine. Fullness of the deity in Jesus' body dwells, dwells in all his saints and me when God his son reveals. Father, manifest thy Son, breathe the true incarnate word, in our inmost souls make known the presence of the Lord. Let the Spirit of our head through every member flow. By our Lord inhabited, we then Emmanuel know. Then he doth his name express, God in us we truly prove. Find with all the life of grace and all the power of love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your encouragement this morning, reminding us that you are ever present. So the reality of this truth deep within, that we might feel and know and remember even in the darkest of our situations, that you are there, that you are working on our behalf. Lord, help us to see as you see, to know as you know. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.